Tonight, a Tennessee Titans legend is gone. We know Steve was shot several times. Steve McNair is dead. This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. Shot to death in a downtown Nashville con. We have learned the series of events. More about how Steve McNair and another woman in an apartment died. The woman who was shot and killed here is Sahil Kazimi. Steve McNair and Jenny Kazemi met somewhere around Christmas 2008. Steve was at the Opry Mills Mall, doing some shopping for the holiday with some family members, and they decided to eat at Dave & Buster's. Doc Simpson, Steve's mentor from Alcorn State, was there that day too. He actually remembers that Jenny was the one who waited on their table. At some point, Doc figures, Steve must have exchanged numbers with her. This was an interesting time in the life of Steve McNair. He had just retired earlier that summer after playing 13 years in the NFL. He was still relatively young, only 35 years old. His marriage appeared to be on the rocks and he was looking for what he wanted to do with the rest of his life, professionally. And now here arrived Jenny Kazemi, this 19-year-old waitress who would inject some excitement into his life. Jenny's friends describe her as a carefree spirit, the life of the party. She was the one who dragged people out to the bar on a Tuesday night. She loved getting dressed up, going out on the town, and flirting with boys. Typical teenager stuff. Here's how Lucretia Polite, one of Jenny's good friends, described her. She was a ball of fire. And when I say that, I mean that in the greatest way possible, you know? She was infectious, like very bubbly, very hyper I'm hyper too, so she was extremely hyper. I would definitely put that on there. Um, she liked music, and she didn't care about dancing in the car, and if the person beside her could saw her or, you know, she'd probably roll down the window and sing to you. You know, she, she just exuded youth, and most people don't know, but she was a little thing. Like, I mean, little itty-bitty. She was small frames, um, very short. It's just like this bite-sized ball of fun. Like, <laughs> that's the best way I could put it. Lucretia said that as Steve and Jenny started seeing each other, Jenny kept their relationship pretty quiet at first. We just always heard her talk about her boyfriend Steve, her boyfriend Steve, her boyfriend Steve, her boyfriend Steve. Okay, whatever. So one night we were, I think we were getting dressed to go out, you know, have one of our girl nights. And um, Jenny kind of comes in and she's in panic. And she's like, you guys, my boyfriend's about to come over. We're like, okay. You know, we continue putting on our makeup, getting dressed. Okay. She's like, no, you guys, can you please just not freak out about who he is? Like, can you just not make that big of a deal? Act normal. So me and one of our friends, we're just looking at each other like, what is her problem? Like, girl, it is not that big of a deal. <laughs> Boyfriend, who cares? You know, like we're just brushing it off. She's dead serious. Like, will you guys please just act normal and blah, blah, blah. So we're like, Jenny, yeah, whatever. We continue getting dressed and uh, her boyfriend gets there and, um, you know, you hear her in the living room because we're in the bathroom. You hear her in the living room and she's like, hey, baby, and, you know, speaking to him, whatever. So he sits on the couch. It's like, guys, this is Steve. So shake his hand. Hi. Okay. We go back in the bathroom and we're getting dressed. 
<laughs> now that friend that I was in the bathroom getting dressed with, as soon as we get around the corner and we're out of sight, she goes, oh my God, oh my God, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? That's Steve McNair. Steve swept Jenny off her feet. He reportedly took her on trips to Las Vegas, Key West, and Los Angeles. He showed her his home state of Mississippi, and he showed her what it was like to live like a millionaire. They'd also just go out to dinner together or go out on the town. Jenny's roommate, Emily Andrews, says that, in many ways, they were like a typical couple. They saw each other very frequently. Like, it wasn't sort of like a once-a-week thing. Um, they would do, like, the lunches and the dinners, and she would go over there. Yeah, people knew about their relationship. There was no—they went out to bars together. They went to restaurants all over town. Like, it wasn't a secret affair that it wasn't public at all. I mean— there were people that would, had come up to Jenny at, like, Dave & Buster's and said, oh, you're Steve McNair's girlfriend. So while it wasn't broadcast, like, all over, Nashville's a small enough town where people knew. Steve had apparently reached a point where he wasn't worried about keeping up appearances anymore. According to several of Jenny's friends and family, Steve told Jenny that he was in the process of leaving his wife, Michelle. Jenny believed Steve. She wanted to believe Steve. She told one family member that she and Steve were going to get married once his divorce was finalized. She told a friend that she and Steve were looking at houses and thinking about having children together someday. One day when she was babysitting for a friend, Jenny said, quote, We're practicing for whenever we have our family. It almost have seemed like a fairy tale to her. The trips, the dinners, the looming engagement. Emily Andrews said that it reached a point where Jenny started relying heavily on Steve financially. Here's Emily talking to the police back in 2009. He kind of started helping her out with bills, and I really didn't like that at all. For a period in time in May, she hardly worked because he was just helping her financially so much. And she would always tell me, like, what do you think about this? What do you, do you think this is smart? And I told her flat out, I think what you're doing is dumb. You know, you can be with him if you really want to be with him, but you don't have to rely on his financial status or whatever. At one point in May, Steve got Jenny a black Cadillac Escalade as an early birthday present. She was turning 20 at the end of the month. Steve co-signed for the car, and he reportedly put a down payment on it. But the Nashville police said that it appeared Jenny was expected to pay the car bill, about $730 a month, on her own. One of Jenny's friends told the police that Steve had offered to pay for the car, but Jenny had refused. She wanted to be more independent which would have been an expensive stance to take. Jenny couldn't afford two car payments, so she passed her old car, her Kia, off to her friend, Christy Rudolph. That arrangement lasted for about a month before things went south. Jenny received two pieces of bad news that really affected her financial situation, and they happened around the same time. First, Emily Andrews told Jenny she was moving out of their apartment and going back to Pittsburgh to be closer to her family. Then, Christy Rudolph decided she couldn't pay for the Kia anymore, so she abandoned the car in a Walgreens parking lot, leaving Jenny to take care of the vehicle again. Suddenly, Jenny had to cover all of her rent and two car bills. Christy Rudolph told me Jenny was in a panic. We had an argument, me and Jenny fell out over that, and we had a huge over-the-phone text message battle about it. It was the biggest fight we ever had in our entire relationship, but I told her I just can't. The payments are too big, and it doesn't make any sense for me to have the car when it's not in my name. 
And she was like, well, how am I going to pay all these bills? I can't pay two car notes. This is going to be insane. I'm so stressed out. And she was just like, she went on this crazy rampage about it. So, so we didn't talk for two weeks after that. On the weekend of June 19th, Jenny and Emily Andrews decided to take a trip to Vegas together without Steve. One last hurrah as roommates. But Emily later told the police that she and another girl had to cover all of Jenny's expenses on the trip because Jenny only had $32 to her name. Then, when they got back, Jenny asked Emily for help with her rent. For her to ask me that, she was pretty stressed out. And she said, okay, um, I, didn't, I don't want to ask Steve, but I'll figure it out, is what she said. I know when we came back from Vegas, she had a lot of bills, and she said that people were, bill collectors were calling her. And I don't know if she had worked that out. Perhaps Jenny was hesitant to go to Steve for money because she was starting to have suspicions that Steve was cheating on her. Two of Jenny's friends told the police that sometime around April or May, Jenny saw a woman leaving McNair's condo. Emily Andrews told the police that Jenny confronted Steve about the woman and that Jenny was heartbroken about it. During the Nashville PD's investigation, the police tracked down another one of McNair's mistresses, a woman named Leah Ignani. Leah told the police that one day, sometime around mid-June, when she was leaving McNair's condo, she noticed a woman watching her from a black Cadillac Escalade. Leah said the car started following her as she drove home. In fact, she said she had seen the Escalade outside her building a few times after that. It's unclear whether Jenny caught multiple women leaving McNair's condo, or whether Leah is describing the same incident that Jenny's friends are referring to, and everyone just has their timeline a bit confused. But Steve was pulling away from Jenny, it seemed. Chris Wall, Steve's bodyguard, told the police that Steve had, quote, slowed down seeing Kazemi and was becoming annoyed with their relationship. He said Jenny would call when Steve was with his wife and kids, and that Steve was bothered by that. Chris told me, quote, there were times when she would get too close to Steve, and he would try to make some distance. The more he did, the more he caused problems. I'm not going to say Steve was getting tired of Jenny, but he was getting tired of the situation. Christy Rudolph told me that, by the end, Jenny was paranoid about her and Steve's relationship. In the end, it was just kind of like, you know, Christy, I drove by his house the other day and I knocked on the door at his condo and some girl comes running out. And I asked him, who was this girl? And he said, oh, I was just holding this girl here for my friend because at the time he shared the condo with another friend. He was like, oh, she's waiting here for so-and-so. And I was like, Jenny, do you really believe that? She was like, no, I think he's lying. I'm like, yeah, I think he's lying too. A lot of times when me and Jenny would go out, we would always end up passing his condo and she would just drive up in the parking lot just to check to see who was there to, to check to see if his car was outside. And I'm like, Jenny, why are you stalking him? Like, let's go. We're supposed to be going downtown, you know, we're supposed to be having fun tonight. But she would always, like, drive by his house every single time. Then, apparently, Jenny found more proof that Steve was unfaithful. Toward the end of June, after she got back from her girl's trip to Vegas, Jenny found a tampon in the garbage at the condo. The following week, she found some used condoms. The fairy tale was coming crashing down all around her. Her bills were mounting, Steve was apparently cheating on her, and then, in the early morning of July 2nd, 2009, Jenny was arrested for a DUI in downtown Nashville, with McNair in the passenger seat. After Steve and Jenny turned up dead, the media got a hold of the videotape from the DUI arrest. One local TV station shared a clip of Jenny in the back of a cruiser, asking to talk to Steve. 
Then the video cuts to Steve leaving the scene in a cab. The implication seemed to be Steve had abandoned Jenny in her time of need, and the DUI had only added tension between the two of them. The incident was painted almost as a tipping point. Police pointed to a text message that Jenny sent Steve the following day, in the early hours of July 3rd. She wrote, quote, I'm gonna have all of you soon, as if she was signaling what was to come. The police also spoke to three people who encountered Jenny at Dave & Buster's during the final two weeks of her life. One customer reported having a conversation with Jenny on June 24th, in which Jenny opened up about her relationship problems with McNair. One Dave & Buster's manager, Tony Farahani, said Jenny had come to him crying on Monday, June 29th, saying she was having financial difficulties and trouble in her personal life. Then there was Sonia New, the Dave & Buster's manager who was on duty on the night of July 3rd, the night Jenny allegedly purchased the gun with which she would kill Steve McNair a few hours later. Sonia told police that sometime around 9, 9.30 that night, she noticed that Jenny seemed down. She wasn't her spunky self. So Sonia asked, is everything all right? Jenny responded, quote, my life has just turned to shit. They talked about Steve and about the DUI and about the future. Despite all of their problems with their relationship, Steve had apparently asked Jenny to move in with him. He'd even apparently given her a key to the condo. But that night at Dave & Buster's, Jenny told Sonia she wasn't sure whether she should move in with him. Sonia asked if Steve was still planning on divorcing his wife, and Jenny just rolled her eyes. Here's Sonia talking to the police. The end of the conversation essentially was that, you know, she's just, my life is just shit, and she just ended. And I was just like, no. I said, you'll get through it, you'll get through it, you always get through things. and. And that was kind of where we ended the conversation. I got calls on my radio and I had to go. But okay. So obviously I didn't, you know, I didn't know how serious it was. The police zeroed in on that one quote. My life is just shit and I should just end it. And took it to mean that Jenny was suicidal. After just four days of investigating, they concluded that Jenny had committed a murder-suicide. Listen to the Nashville Police's press conference. Over the last five to seven days of Kazemi's life, our investigation is learning that she had become very distraught and on two occasions told friends and associates that her life was all messed up and that she was going to end it all. While we may never know exactly what drove Ms. Kazemi to make that decision on that Saturday morning, the totality of the evidence clearly points to a murder-suicide. That's Ron Surpass, the Nashville Chief of Police. He would be quoted as saying, she told friends her life was so messed up that she was going to end it all. She believed her relationship with Mr. McNair was unraveling. There's evidence she was spinning out of control. But Vincent Hill, the former cop turned private investigator, didn't buy it. When he started his own investigation in the Steve McNair case, he tracked down Sonia New and asked her about that final conversation with Jenny. Sonia told Vincent that she thinks the police took that quote out of context. I tracked down Sonia too and went through all of this with her myself. When Jenny said, quote, I should just end it, Sonia took that to mean that she should end her relationship with Steve McNair, not that she should end her life. Let's clarify something with that. Those words were spoken, but in context of what we were speaking of, there was a pause. My life is sick. I should just end it. And again, we were talking about his relationship with her. That's what we were speaking of. We weren't speaking of bills. We weren't speaking of anything else 
but their relationship at that point in the conversation. So there was a pregnant pause. I should just send it. So, again, I did not take that statement to mean I'm going to kill myself. Or even deeper, I'm going to kill Steve McNair and then kill myself. There was nothing in that conversation that would indicate that she was going to take her own life, much less somebody else's. Sonia New felt as though the police had put a lot of emphasis on that one quote. The police used that statement and pretty much it, it feels to me like they used that statement and shut the case. They didn't investigate as deeply as I think they could have or should have. Now, that's just my opinion. Um, obviously, I, I, I was, I'm not one of the detectives. I don't have all the information, but um, I never felt like it was a statement that she was going to end her life. Never once. I asked Sonia New, did she think of reaching out to the police and clarifying her statement? Not really. I flat out told them I didn't take it that way. That's not the context. You know, that was not even indicated. That never even crossed my mind. I don't think she meant it that way. Um, I didn't follow up because I figured what, what good would it do? They have their reasoning. They've closed the case. What good would it do? There's that. That's the main reason. The second reason is that I, I honestly just didn't want to talk about it anymore. When the staff got word that, you know, once my words were um, publicized, if you will, I had a lot of blowback from the staff also. People were very, very upset. They were like, you know she didn't. And I'm like, no, I know she didn't. Those words are my words, but they, they're so out of context. But I just, I guess I've had enough. I pretty much shut down on the whole thing. So Sonia New did not reach out and clarify. She figured the case was closed. What good would it do? As we talked about that statement more, my life is just shit and I should just end it. Sonia admitted that in that moment when she was talking to the police, she was thinking out loud, and part of her wondered if Jenny had been talking about taking her own life. In doing so, I think she may have opened the door for the police to misinterpret what she was saying. I was a little emotional, I'm not going to lie. It was very emotional in that interview. It was all very, very fresh, and I was questioning if that statement was related, but... I made it very clear that when we were having that conversation, it wasn't about ending her life. I questioned it, but then I made it very clear that the conversation was, in my mind, about Steve McNair. That is what I took away from the conversation. And it wasn't, you know, looking back at all the evidence, just planning on going out and having a good time with her friend, you know? So even... If she didn't have those plans and if there weren't other things, you know, going on, then maybe that maybe that statement would have a little bit more weight, but that's not the case. What Sonia's saying there is she doesn't believe that Jenny was talking about ending her life given everything that she knows now, given everything that Vincent Hill has brought to life. During his investigation, Vincent has been in touch with several of Jenny's friends and family. He's interviewed them, he's mined them for info, and they've cooperated for the most part because they hope that someday he'll be able to clear Jenny's name. The person who's helped Vincent the most, perhaps, is one of Jenny's older sisters. I reached out to the sister early in the reporting process, and we've been in regular contact ever since. She asked that I identify her by name because she feared that it would interfere with her job. 
and she asked that her voice not be used on the podcast either. But she agreed to speak to me to provide some context for the story. From here on, we'll refer to her as Amanda, which is not her real name, but a pseudonym. Amanda told me that, in her mind, Jenny wasn't capable of such violence. Jenny didn't like scary movies, and she was squeamish. She didn't like blood. Amanda said that Jenny would refuse to even slice an orange. She was so afraid she'd accidentally cut herself. But Jenny hadn't been totally insulated from violence. She spent the early part of her life in Tehran, Iran. And when she was nine years old, her mother was murdered. ESPN reported that Jenny's mom had been killed in a robbery home invasion. A family member told ESPN that the police came to the Kazemi home to investigate, but they left quickly after they found out that the Kazemis were not Muslim. Amanda said Jenny was unfazed by their mother's death, maybe because she'd been so young when it happened. Amanda said that, quote, when we talked about the past and about our mother, she was cool. She handled it very well and moved on. It didn't hit her very much. After Jenny's mother died, the family left Iran because they were, quote, fleeing religious persecution, according to the Associated Press. Jenny moved to Turkey and stayed there for a few years, and then came to the United States as an Iranian refugee. She moved to the Jacksonville, Florida area to live with one of her sisters, not Amanda, but another sister. Jenny was 13 years old when she arrived. She didn't speak any English, and she reportedly had a rough time in high school. One relative later told the police that she had behavioral problems until she started dating a boy named Keith Norfleet. At one point, Jenny moved in with Norfleet and his family. When Jenny was 16, she reportedly dropped out of high school and followed Norfleet to Nashville. As Jenny moved across the country, Amanda stayed in touch. Amanda would call Jenny to check in and talk about mundane things, her friends, her job, her life in Nashville. Sometimes when Amanda would ask about her private life, Jenny would get embarrassed, as you'd expect a younger sibling would. By all accounts, Jenny had several male suitors in her life. She was a pretty girl. She had dark features and long, dark hair. She apparently had options other than Steve McNair. That's why Jenny's friends don't believe that she was that upset when she discovered that Steve may have been sleeping around. When Jenny found the tampon at the condo, she told her roommate Emily Andrews about it, and she didn't seem that upset. As far as the tampon went, she stated it matter-of-factly to me on the phone, and it was like, yeah, I think it's about over. And she didn't seem, like, upset or anything. It was just more kind of matter-of-fact. She wasn't surprised by that. I think initially she was probably hurt, but she also kind of thought that two could play that game. And... It wasn't an end-all for her by any means. She was a beautiful girl. She was boy crazy. She had other options. (laughs) Back in 2009, Emily Andrews told the police that, in addition to Steve McNair, Jenny had been seeing two other football players, another Tennessee Titan named Quentin Ganther and a Vanderbilt football player. Ganther told the police that he had never been romantically involved with Jenny. At one point, Jenny also may have had a fling with Vince Young, another Titans quarterback. Vince was like a little brother to Steve, a protege. Christy Rudolph told me that she had seen Jenny with Vince Young firsthand. No, I was there when they hooked up a few times. I was in the next room. You were in the next room? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I we went to Vince Young's house a few times, and I was in the next room when they were hooking up. So. Was that around the same time? That was like early? That was definitely after her and Steve had been talking for a while. 
that was doing the middle and the end, you know? Because before that, I don't feel like Jeannie was as promiscuous as she was at the end of their relationship. She was really into Steve. But somewhere along the way, you know, maybe after she found out that he wasn't faithful, she started talking to other people and, you know, having relationships with other people. I reached out to Vince Young, and he denied having a romantic relationship with Jenny. Chris Wall, Steve's bodyguard, agreed with Christie's general sentiment that Jenny had options other than Steve. Yes, Wall had told the police that Steve was getting tired of Jenny, but he also thought that Jenny would have no trouble finding another man if Steve ever left her. She was in that mix of professional players, Chris told me, to try and act like she was a distraught 20-year-old that didn't have nothing to lose and was just tore up because of Steve. That's crazy. She was already in the circle. She dated other titans. She was around. It wasn't like Steve was her golden goose and she wouldn't be able to find another one. Jenny's friends and family also take issue with the idea that she was stressed about money. I asked Emily Andrews about their girls' trip to Vegas. Back in 2009, Emily had told the police that when they went on that trip, Jenny only had $32 to her name. To me, it doesn't seem that big of a deal that a 19-year-old kid is broke. So, like, I probably said it so nonchalantly to the police because I've been there too. I've had $32 to my name. I do remember, like, covering her expenses in Vegas, but as a friend, and she would have done the same for me had she had it, so it maybe I didn't articulate that good enough to the cops. I'm not sure, like, what the police report says, but it doesn't feel like that absurd or that strange. No, yeah. This wasn't a 30-year-old woman who had $30 and had to provide for her family. This was a young kid who probably spent too much money at the mall a week ago. And if Jenny did need money, her friends told me Steve would have given it to her. He may have been sleeping around with other women, but he was still supporting Jenny. Back in 2009, Jenny's nephew told the police that Steve had been giving her, quote, several thousand dollars a month. Emily Andrews told the police, quote, he just kind of put money into her account whenever. There was an example of this actually included in the police report. The police cite a series of texts between Jenny and Steve on the morning of July 3rd. In the messages, Jenny tells Steve that she's stressed out, that she can't hardly breathe, and that she might go to the hospital. Baby, I might have a breakdown. I'm so stressed, she writes. Those messages were included in the police report, it seemed, to show that Jenny was spiraling out of control. But as Jenny is telling Steve about her problems, she also asks him to deposit $2,000 into her account so she can pay her bills. Steve appears to ignore the request at first. Then a few hours later, Jenny circles back and Steve tells her that he has someone transferring the money into her account. CBS later reported that Jenny had more than $2,500 in her bank account at the time of her death. And so she wasn't broke, definitely not $32 broke. Emily Andrews, Jenny's roommate, told me that Jenny would do that all the time. She would pretend to be anxious about her bills to get money from Steve as a way to manipulate her rich boyfriend. Steve did help her financially. And as a, I think for Jenny, she had never dated anyone with that kind of financial success or, you know, however you want to call it. I think she took advantage of that. Actually, I know she took advantage of that. There were two or three occasions where spontaneous Jenny would be on the couch and say, gosh, I'd really love to go to the mall, or wouldn't it be nice if we could go to Atlanta and do some shopping? 
hang on, let me check Steve. And kind of looking back on it, it's really kind of embarrassing and crazy, but she would sit there and send him a message about, I really need money. Rent is due. Could you help me? And within minutes, he would have wired her $500, $1,000, $2,000 over to her account. And she'd laugh and say, all right, we can go shopping now. I think some of those text messages are taken out of context because we don't know if she was really being dramatic and really having a nervous breakdown about finances or if she just found a new purse that she wanted. It seemed odd to me. Why would Jenny ask Steve for money on the morning of July 3rd if she planned on killing him that night? And then there's the DUI. For the police, this seemed like a key part of their narrative, that Jenny was spiraling out of control. The DUI was presumed to be the final straw that drove Jenny to buy the gun. But when Jenny called Emily Andrews the morning after the DUI, she said, Guess what? I got a DUI last night. As if it were a joke. She basically left the whole thing off. I remember when she called me like the morning after her DUI, and that wasn't even a dramatic thing for her. I remember like her saying, I got a DUI, but it's okay. Like, not worried about it. Steve's going to handle it type thing. And I was the one that was like, wait a minute, you got a DUI. Like, that's kind of a big deal. She wasn't worried about that. It was, I got a DUI. Everything's going to be fine. How's the weather? Like, it was just that it wasn't a long, drawn-out story about, you know, how it was going to affect her future or anything like that. I think she realized she made a mistake, but it also wasn't earth-shattering. Jenny said something similar to Sonia New and to Roosevelt Glass, another Dave & Buster's employee who gave a statement to the police. Jenny said she was certain that Steve and his lawyer would help her with the DUI charge. Here's what Jenny had told Sonia New. Steve was going to take care of it. Steve and his lawyer, he had already retained, or he, I assume he probably had a lawyer uh, retained, but um, he had already retained a lawyer. Um, he had bonded her out. He was going to take care of it financially. So she wasn't worried that it was going to devastate her financially. Take a look at the tape of Jenny's DUI arrest. This is the tape that the media excerpted on TV in the aftermath of Steve and Jenny's deaths. It starts off showing Jenny going through a field sobriety test, and then it shows her in the back of a patrol car talking with Sean Taylor, the police officer who arrested her. The first thing that struck me, it was a little eerie hearing Jenny's voice for the first time. It was also the first time I had heard Jenny say her own name. Officer Taylor asked her how to pronounce it. By this point, you've heard various people say her name probably a half dozen different ways. But here, in this DUI video, she says, Sahel Kazemi. So that's how we decided to pronounce it on the podcast. Then, as the tape goes on, it becomes increasingly clear. Jenny doesn't appear angry or upset. In fact, she appears quite the opposite. Her tone is bubbly and upbeat, just as her friends described her. It turns out, Officer Taylor had pulled Jenny over before. Jenny asks if he remembers her. You miss me, she says, chuckling. A little bit later, Jenny pretends to be scared that she's going to jail. And then she makes an off-color prison rape joke. As Jenny and Officer Taylor sit there waiting for someone to come pick up Jenny's Escalade, they make casual conversation about Steve. As they're talking, Jenny suddenly realizes that Officer Taylor and Steve have a history. He's arrested Steve for a DUI, too. I wonder why he doesn't want to come back and talk to you for some reason. Probably because of me. No, 
just run across each other before. Why? Not really catching you. Yeah, I never lost you. Oh, was it you? Oh, no. He definitely fell with you. No, he didn't. You ran somewhere to UI? Oh, what's your name? Officer Taylor. Taylor. What day do you work? <laughs> Tuesday through Saturday. Saturday Jenny doesn't sound upset. She's practically giggling. By the end of the video, Jenny seems to have made a new friend in Officer Taylor. You shouldn't even arrest the 20-year-old girl. What have I done? 20-year-old girl shouldn't be out drinking and driving. I'm not drinking! Then why not take a breath test? CBS also obtained surveillance video that showed Jenny at the jail the night of the DUI. Jenny talks to strangers. She fixes a woman's hair. CBS says that over the course of the video, quote, she never seems angry or unhappy. Vincent Hill thinks the police took the DUI arrest out of context, the same way they took Sonya New's statement out of context, the same way they took Jenny's texts out of context. Remember, the police pointed to one text that Jenny sent Steve that said, quote, I'm going to have all of you soon. They thought that it was Jenny's way of foreshadowing the killing. But Vincent points out, that text was pulled from a conversation Jenny and Steve were having at 2 a.m. Jenny started by saying, you love me. I love you, baby, Steve responded. I'm going to have all of you soon. Yes, you will. Let's keep in mind, this was a 20-year-old female. I've been married twice. I've been in a few relationships. When a female is mad at you, you know it. So there were no texts from Jenny that says, I hate your guts. Why are you seeing these other women? None of this other crap that you would expect to see. But here's what Nashville police did. Well, she texted him two days before and says, I'm going to have all of you soon. So we knew that meant she was going to kill him. Well, no, because if you look at the text before that one text, hey, baby, response, hey, baby, I love you, baby. I love you too, baby. I'm going to have all of you soon. Mm, yes, you will. So anybody with some sense knows what that was about. That was something sexual. It wasn't anything about, I'm going to have all of you soon as in, I'm going to shoot you twice in the temple and twice in the chest. That's why it's so hard for Jenny's friends and family to accept this police narrative. They have so many questions. It's especially hard on those who spoke to Jenny on the night of July 3rd, in the final hours before she died. Remember, Jenny was working at Dave & Buster's that night. At 8.25 p.m., she tried calling Emily Andrews, her former roommate who had moved to Pittsburgh. But Emily was in a bar at the time, and the two of them never really had a chance to talk. When I interviewed Emily, she said she had seen no signs that Jenny was that upset recently. She said that Jenny had even joked about moving to Pittsburgh. When I moved from Nashville to Pittsburgh, she kind of had said something, and that was in June, she had said something like, well, if Steve and I don't work out, I'll live in Pittsburgh. So it wasn't like, I mean, a month prior then, she sort of had suspected that maybe the relationship wasn't going to be like fairy tales of purchasing this house or living that dream. And she had already sort of had plan Bs and that sort of thing. Jenny had that conversation with her manager, Sonia New, sometime around 9, 9.30. Then Sonia let Jenny leave work early because business was slow. Jenny clocked out of work at 10.07 p.m. At 10.12 p.m., she spoke with her friend, Courtney Carter, who's going to be in Florida for the holiday weekend. Courtney told me that Jenny sounded normal to her. It was just kind of like, okay, well, I'm glad you got down there safely, whatever. 
So it was a quick conversation. It wasn't long. We'll hang when you get back. I feel like if I was talking to somebody that was spiraling out of control, as they said, I feel like I would have picked up on that from a friend that I was around frequently. Then at 10.15 p.m., Jenny called her friend, Lucretia Polite. Jenny and Lucretia had plans to hang out that night. They had recently gotten into a bit of a fight, and that was supposed to be the night they made up. Jenny wasn't even planning on seeing McNair, apparently. She was supposed to see Lucretia. But now, over the phone, Lucretia canceled her plans with Jenny. Lucretia told me that she had decided to spend the night in Memphis instead of driving back to Nashville. I called her to let her know that I wasn't going to be able to make it in town in time for us to hang out or whatever. So I just kind of called her to give her, you know, the heads up and let her know, hey, you know, I'm sorry that we're not going to be able to hang out. But girl, I'm still in Memphis. That's where I was at the time. And um, at that point, she was just like she was very nonchalant about it. Like, oh, OK, that's fine, girl. Well, she actually said to me, I already told Steve that we were hanging out. But since you're not here, I'll hit him up and see what he's doing. So it was like, Steve was like her plan B, you know? She was very just normal, her normal self. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, talk to you later. You know, I actually expected her to be a little bit upset at me because we had made plans, we hadn't seen each other. But no, she was very like, okay, well, plan A didn't work. Let me go to plan B. At 10.23 p.m., Jenny texted Steve asking if he wanted to grab a drink. Steve told her he was putting his boys to bed, and Jenny responded, saying she was going to head over to the condo. McNair met her there later, sometime around 1.30 in the morning. By about 2 a.m., both Jenny and McNair were dead. Jenny's friends and family say something doesn't add up there. At 10.15 p.m., Jenny seemed fine. Then by 2 a.m., she's dead? They had issues with this police narrative that Jenny was spiraling out of control. They say she wasn't hurting that much for money. She had more than $2,500 in her bank account. They say she wasn't that upset about the DUI. Steve was going to help her beat it. In fact, they say she was already planning for her life after Steve. She was starting to see other guys. Plus, she wasn't even supposed to see McNair on the night of July 3rd. She had plans with Lucretia Polite. This is directly out of her mouth. So this isn't like hearsay or anything like that. I literally heard these words in my ears. So I, I remember reiterating that, no, like she had already told him that she had plans and he was her plan B, which for me, with no law degree or anything, that knocks out premeditated murder. People always ask, and you know, I reiterate that to anyone that I can, you know, because I feel like that small detail is huge. You know, I can stand up on 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 a stand and testify with with that. You know, I'd be willing to put my hand on the Bible for that. Jenny spoke to her sister, Amanda, on July 3rd, too. And Amanda didn't notice anything wrong either. She said they talked about Steve and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At one point, Jenny told her sister, quote, I don't think I'm going anywhere with Steve. It's not that serious anymore. Then they talked about how Steve was frustrated with his wife for not giving him a divorce. They were gossiping like they usually would. Amanda doesn't believe that Jenny was that stressed about money either. She thinks Jenny would have come to her if it had gotten too bad. She says that she had the money and she had lent Jenny money in the past. Amanda told me, quote, if she was that desperate, I was the last resort. She would have called me. I know that. So the money issues, the DUI issues, it's all bullshit. Remember what the Nashville police accused Jenny of doing. 
They say that she was so depressed about her life and the way things were going that she purchased a gun in the parking lot of her place of work, brought it to Steve's condo that night, and murdered him. They say that Jenny Kazemi, the girl who wouldn't even slice her own oranges, shot Steve McNair four times, twice in the head and twice in the chest. To Jenny's friends and family, that seems impossible. They just can't bring themselves to believe that. And then they have this question. Where in the world would Jenny have gotten this gun? We'll discuss that next week on Fall of a Titan. Still to come on Fall of a Titan. She met him when she was still with him. She kind of got a kick out of the fact that her ex-boyfriend was a Steve McNair fan and he had no idea that she was dating him. She kind of got a kick out of that. She laughed about it. She thought it was funny. She was like, look, he's so obsessed with McNair. He has no idea I'm dating him. She laughed about it. Even just to shut me up, this old crazy Nashville cop, even to shut me up, you know what they would have done? They would have shown that video to say, here's Adrian Gillian pulling up in the Opry Mills. Here's Sahel Kazemi seen walking out of David Busters to his car. But guess what they haven't done? They haven't shown that. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. That's the whole premise of the case. The easiest way to shut people up is just show that. It doesn't exist. 